So this wouldn't be me just rambling on, but Lord, our hearts would be engaged with your word. Or maybe a better way to say it is that your word would engage our hearts and do things that we can't comprehend, things that we don't control. So Holy Spirit, would you move in us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, the world fell in love with Snuffy the Seal, who washed up on shore injured and dehydrated. We now go live to Snuffy's triumphant return to the sea. We are just moments away from releasing Snuffy, the rescued seal, back into the ocean. And now you see it, Snuffy's triumphant return. Holy... Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That video clip is an advertisement for, I think, Shark Week on the Discovery Channel, and it's staged. But there are videos a lot like that on uh, YouTube that are not staged, like the one of the little girl that found the bunny and she raised the bunny, and this bunny is good and it's cute. The bunny represents uh, you know, her efforts, her hopes, and her dreams. And in the video, you see her releasing the bunny along with her mother in the front yard. And, and she's like, oh, the bunny's fine, and runs across the yard, and this hawk swoops down and takes the bunny away you seen that video it's so sad I'm not gonna I'm not gonna show it to you but 15 years ago this day this morning right about now you all saw this video Trade Center represented America's efforts, hopes, and dreams. It it represented our business, world trade. And something swoops down out of the sky and in a moment takes all of our toil away. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, wrote Solomon. 
2,996 Americans died in the terrorist attacks on 9-11. And yet, 151,600 people die every day. And most of those deaths are more painful and far more tragic than just an instantaneous death in some sort of terrorist attack. 9-11 deaths were only 1.97% of global deaths for that day 15 years ago today. Or 0.0054% of the global deaths for that year. Someone uh, once said, good health, good health is merely the slowest possible way to die. <laughs> so you get the picture. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And, and the truth is that we're really dying already. Paul even writes that. He, he's, that, that we are constantly being given up to death. And yet it seems that we're all somehow in denial of death. Do you know that every sorrow that you feel is somehow an awareness of death? but we deny death. We hide from the sorrow. The Mahabharata, it's an ancient Indian text, says it this way. Of all the world's wonders, which is most wonderful? That no man, though he sees others dying all around him, believes that he himself will die. I wrote of a financial planner that, that remarked, it's so weird, when he's planning people's estates, none of the people ever say, um, when I die, they all say, if I die, as if it's in question. Sometimes it feels like the worst denial happens at church. God wants you to be happy, so you need to ignore your sorrow, says the preacher. Always look on the bright side of life, which, in the context of Christianity, is a very confusing message. Best illustrated by Monty Python. Ain't always look on the bright side of life. Come on. Always look on the right side of life. Is, is that the gospel? <laughs> Ignore your sufferings and your sorrows and whistle. Ignore the cross on your back. Just deny it. Well, Solomon doesn't ignore the dark side of life. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And strangely enough, that somehow makes me happy. Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the preacher. Preacher in Hebrew is the word kohelet. It means one who addresses a congregation, uh, an ecclesia in Greek. That's where we get the word ecclesiastes, the one who addresses the ecclesia. But the real title in the Jewish mind is the first line of the book. Uh, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, for a few thousand years, pastors and rabbis have said that that king is King Solomon, son of David. And throughout the book, there are references to things that would make you think this must be uh, the son of David, King Solomon. Recently, though, many scholars have argued that because of language and style, it isn't Solomon. While others say it must be Solomon, I believe it is Solomon in, in one form or another. 
Perhaps someone collected and rephrased the words of Solomon, just like someone took the King James Version and turned it into the New King James Version, and yet it's still uh, the Bible. Whatever the case, I believe that Solomon is the author, but I would remind you that Solomon means Prince of Peace. And so there is a first Solomon that is a picture and a type of the last Solomon. See, I believe that all of Scripture was somehow authored by Solomon. That is the Word of God. It was written in different places, at different times, with different languages, yet it all manifests one word, one logos, one wisdom, if you will. So if Ecclesiastes seems to contradict the rest of Scripture, I bet it's simply contradicting our understanding of the rest of Scripture. See, I believe Ecclesiastes is inspired. That means it says more than the preacher understands. It says more than old King Solomon understands. It reveals truths that won't be understood for another thousand years or maybe even uh, to the end of the age. It reveals wisdom that we can't comprehend and yet wisdom that comprehends us. Because we can't always comprehend it, many religious people have questioned whether or not it should be in the Bible. And yet, because it does comprehend us, many agnostics and hopeless sinners have found themselves reading it. Herman Melville, who was a famous pessimist and agnostic, wrote in his bestseller, Moby Dick, Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. I find it fascinating that three books in our canon, that is our accepted scripture, are attributed to Solomon, and that they all appear together, and they appear in this order. First, Proverbs, which seems to say, do this thing, and then this other thing will happen. That's law. Secondly, after Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It doesn't say that the law is wrong. It just says, ah, it doesn't work. I can't get it to work. So all our toil is in vain and it ends in death. And then thirdly, the Song of Solomon, a love poem, which says love is strong as death. Love is the Shalhabet Yah, the very flame of the Lord. All three books, the words of Solomon, Prince of Peace. Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity is the Hebrew word habel. The NIV, and maybe some other versions too, translate that word as meaningless, but it can't simply mean meaningless because then Solomon is saying all is meaningless, which would include the statement all is meaningless is meaningless, which really then means we're saying nothing at all, and I don't think that's the case. Quite literally, habel means vapor. Like on a cold morning when you breathe out and you, you see the vapor, you see the steam and then it disappears. Hebel means vapor or, or breath. In the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, Hebel gets translated as metaiotes, which in English usually is translated futility. So Paul writes, all creation has been subjected to metaiotes, futility, Hebel. 
All creation has been subjected to futility in hope. Futility. Nothing lasts. It all changes. Nothing we can do changes that unchangeable fact. All human effort produces nothing and cannot change that sad fact. We can't change that wisdom. And yet maybe that wisdom can change us. Psalm 39, King David writes this, Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, hevel, selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, like a shadow self, an empty self. Surely for nothing, hebel, they are in turmoil. So man is hebel, hebel, pursuing and fighting over hebel. That is the hebel of hebels, the vanity of vanities, the breath of breaths. Verse 11, surely all mankind is a mere breath, hebel, writes David. So... Is that true? Isaiah 57, God says through Isaiah, when you cry out, let your collection of idols, and this is fascinating too, because in scripture, uh, idols are often called or defined as hebel, that is the vanity of vanities. God says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind, ruach, will carry them all off. A breath, hebel, will take them away. So that's fascinating, because in Isaiah 57, wind is equated with habel. And wind is the Hebrew word ruach in Hebrew. It means like the spirit of God or the breath of God. So Isaiah is saying that God's breath is judgment upon your every breath, all that you idolize. So, do you idolize yourself because that would make you the breath of breath are you your own breath are you your own creation or are you God's breath God's creation see vanity of vanities is just a really fascinating and intriguing phrase Solomon repeats it at the end of the book. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Hopefully by then, we'll have a better understanding of what it means. But for now, just hold those thoughts and questions in your head as we continue to read. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. And, and you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking. Racing around to come up behind you again. <laughs> like Pink Floyd and Solomon say, you cannot catch the sun. But the sun will catch you. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. 
The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem and applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom, using wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of Adam, man, to be busy with. Translators are obviously afraid to translate that verse literally because Solomon literally wrote, just wrote, it is an evil business. The word translated happy is a Hebrew word raw. It's the very word that's used in the phrase, the knowledge of good and raw, good and evil. Solomon literally writes, it is an evil business that God has given to the children of Adam to be busy with. Evil is that which God does not will. Yet according to Solomon, God seems to will that we would will what he does not will. It's like God sets us up to do an evil business. Since that very day, he breathed his breath into the dust and planted that tree in the garden. And isn't that exactly what Paul writes in Galatians 3.22? Scripture, and he's talking about the law, the knowledge of good and evil, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise might be given. Romans 11.32 says it this way, God consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. It's like God willed that we would will what he does not will in order that we would learn to trust or love what he does will. His will, his judgment, his way, his wisdom. So a whole lot to ponder, ponder there. But Solomon keeps writing, so let's keep reading. It is an evil business that God has given to the children of Adam to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And that's that word ruach in Hebrew again. Uh, God's spirit, God's breath, striving after. Have you ever tried to strive after the wind? I mean, have you ever tried to like capture the wind in a jar? Because you can capture the wind in a jar. But then it's not like wind anymore. It's like dead wind. <laughs> Air that no longer moves. Remember Job tried to capture the wind? I, by that I mean he tried to understand the spirit of God. The reason for all the futility and suffering and sorrow in his life. He tried to capture the wind and at the end of the book what happens? The wind captures him. in the form of a tornado. Ouch. The wind captures Job's heart. 
It's an evil business that God has given to the children of Adam to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it's all vanity and striving after ruach. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. So catching wind in a jar must be kind of like catching wisdom in a book. It's a bit of wind, dead wind that you've got in your jar, and it's a bit of wisdom, dead wisdom that you've got in your book. But you really don't know wisdom or wind until the wind or wisdom captures you until wisdom comes along and literally blows you away like a mighty rushing wind. Catching wisdom in a book must be kind of like nailing wisdom to a tree. It dies. And you really don't know wisdom until wisdom rises from the dead and sweeps you away like a mighty rushing wind until Wisdom on a page, like law, becomes wisdom in your heart, like, like love. Well, anyway, Solomon concludes chapter one by writing this. Listen to this. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Gah! You can philosophize that about all that about all, all day, but I tell you what, my heart has already learned that. How about yours? Maybe if you're under 16, maybe not. If you're over, I bet it's starting to happen. The more wisdom you get, the more vexed and confused you become. The more you know, the more you know that you know uh, less than you should know or as you should know. You know? You know what I mean? The more you know the good, the more you know the evil, and the more you lie awake, vexed and confused, wrestling with some sort of unseen wrestler who will not let you go. That's why you drink so much. That's why you smoke so much. Why you eat so much. Why you shop so much why you leer at porn so much, why you gossip about your neighbors so much. You're just trying to shut it off. You're trying to forget because all the wisdom and knowledge produces this profound sorrow. A sorrow so great that you think it will just kill you. And so now that I'm 55, I think I finally understand Sergeant Schultz. <laughs> Remember Sergeant Schultz? Of course he doesn't want wisdom and knowledge. It only leads to more sorrow. I see nothing. I was not here. I did not even get up this morning. <laughs> I see nothing. I know nothing. I know nothing. That makes sense to me. They say ignorance is bliss. But if ignorance really is bliss, 
wouldn't it ultimately make you ignorant of the bliss? That would be like standing in paradise next to Jesus but not knowing that he is the word of love, that he is good, that he is your helper and that you are so very, very, very not alone. So if wisdom produces vexation and knowledge increases sorrow, perhaps it's worth it. Wisdom is worth the sorrow. You know, Solomon did also write, blessed is the one who finds wisdom, as if it wrestles with you and then blesses you and it's worth it. Well, Solomon seeks wisdom and he gets wisdom and now he is reaping sorrow. Maybe you remember how he got wisdom. It's recorded in 2 Chronicles 10 and 1 Kings uh, chapter 3. Uh, God appeared to him in a dream saying, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon answers, Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours which is so great? That's 2 Chronicles 1.10. This is 1, Corinthians 3, or 1 Kings 3.9. Solomon says, give your servant therefore, listen closely, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. So Solomon is asking for wisdom and knowledge of good and evil, isn't he? Next verse, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. You know, Eve did not ask this of God. She, in that first Adam, took this from God. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. And then God basically says, because you have asked for wisdom, I give you wisdom and all things with wisdom. Then Solomon worships, judges between these two prostitutes with his baby. He becomes this great judge, rules over Israel from Jerusalem, basically invents science and builds a temple of God, all in the next couple chapters. Scripture calls Solomon the wisest man that ever lived, but Solomon writes this at the end of Ecclesiastes, or right here at the start of Ecclesiastes, in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In chapter verse 17, we'll read this. He writes, do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? <laughs> he acts as if knowing wisdom is the death of yourself. But maybe it's worth it. Like Solomon writes in Proverbs, blessed is the one who gets wisdom. So what the heck is wisdom? And now it's really, really important that you pay attention because this is where things get really wild and woolly and wonderful. Listen to what scripture says. We're gonna read some verses and then I want you to ask these questions. What is wisdom? Where do I find wisdom? Or better yet, where does wisdom find me? This is Proverbs 1.20. Solomon writes, wisdom cries or sings. The verb can be usually sing. Sings aloud in the street, in the markets. She raises her voice. So wisdom is like a person. 
even a female that calls to us, sings to us, romances us. Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. She is a tree of life. To those who lay hold of her, those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So wisdom is a person and a tree of life through whom God created all things. Proverbs 8, wisdom starts talking, and this is what she says. When he, Yahweh, established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, I was there. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of Adam. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains grace, favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Like, like she's the judgment somehow. Proverbs 9, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Come eat of my bread and drink of my wine that I have mixed, she calls. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Dang. That's kind of intriguing, isn't it? We already learned that wisdom is somehow the knowledge of good and evil. And we just learned that wisdom is life. But more than life, it's a tree of life. Wisdom builds her house and calls to us with bread and wine. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning, not not the end, the beginning. God creates all things with wisdom, including you. Now listen to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. That's logos. It basically means logic or or reason or meaning, which to me sounds a little bit like, like wisdom. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He, and this is kind of a fascinating study if you get into that gender thing, because wisdom is she, and now he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The word became flesh and dwelt among us full of favor, that is grace. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 1.24. Christ, the wisdom of God, verse 30. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom. So Jesus is the wisdom of God in flesh. Jesus is the life of God in flesh. Jesus is the good, and and he said God alone is good. Jesus is the good in flesh, which must somehow lead to the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus is wisdom. So where do we find wisdom? Or, Or maybe I should say, where does wisdom find us? How about on a tree? In in a garden. You know, in both Hebrew and Greek, there's this word that basically means timber or wood. And so it gets used to refer to a tree or timber or a gallows or a cross. 
the Jews believed that the Garden of Eden was on the Temple Mount. Christ was crucified in a garden called Calvary outside, just outside the gates of Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. The New Jerusalem is also a temple that comes down at the side of the temple. It's a temple and a garden in the middle of the New Jerusalem. The garden of the New Jerusalem, there is one tree, the tree of life. In the Garden of Eden, there are two trees that look like one tree because they're both in exactly like the same place, the middle of the garden. I suspect that Jesus was crucified on that tree somehow. And that tree bears fruit for the healing of the nations as revealed in the Revelation where there is one tree in the middle of the garden city, the New Jerusalem. So where do we find wisdom? Well, how about on the tree in the garden in Genesis chapter two and on the tree in the garden along about 33 AD recorded in the gospels and at the end of time on the tree in the garden which dispenses wisdom from the healing of the nations as revealed in Revelation chapter two. And whenever and wherever along this timeline that wisdom calls to people. Whenever and wherever a person knows good or evil, receives life or, or does the word of God, will of God and judgment of God there, is wisdom. See, I don't know exactly how to put all of this together, but, but I do think it reveals that we modern Christians have made the cross far, far, far too small and far, far, far too localized and because of that far, far, far too impotent. This is a painting from the 15th century it's titled The Fall and Redemption of Man. See Jesus on that tree up there? At the tree, mankind falls. We take the life of God. And at the tree, mankind is redeemed for what we took, God gives. And the tree bears the fruit of an entire new creation. See all those people down there at the foot of the tree? Here's a picture. Uh, of the tree of life bearing the 12 apostles or the 12 fruits for the healing of the nations from the revelation. This is a picture of Christ on the tree of life, crucified on the tree of life for his uh, bride in 1610. And look, humanity is now his bride sitting at the base of the tree. I, I like this print, this next print, and I'm showing you the version with the company logo in it. I don't know if you can, can you see that? Maybe it didn't show up very well in that picture. And uh, it's supposed to show up so that it forces me to buy the picture, but I like the logo. And I'm sorry it didn't show up there, but what the logo is, is this swirling vortex around the center of Jesus' body on the tree. I, I like it because I think of it as a timeline. Robert Jensen wrote this, time as we see it, framing the biblical narrative, is neither linear nor cyclical, but perhaps more like a helix, and what it spirals around is the risen Christ. That is the slaughtered lamb standing on the throne, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, I think space and time are like a helix that spirals through Christ and him crucified like water spirals through a drain and on the other side of this drain is an entire new creation. 
This is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, writes Paul, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood, Prince of Peace, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the tree, the cross, the tree of the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the cosmos. But now, this is my point. So, Philostia, this is my point. Wisdom does not change, but we do. The word of God does not change, but we do. It seems to change because our relationship with it changes, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything under the sun changes. But the word of God changes everything under the sun. Jesus Christ and him crucified does not change, but Jesus Christ and him crucified does change all things. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the boundary between time and eternity, the boundary between everything that changes and that which does not change but is I am. Between our world and the world where all is reconciled, all is one, all is filled with I am. So from space and time, we see two trees. Judgment and grace. But in the New Jerusalem, we see only one, and it is life. You know, all of our relationships, in all of our uh, relationships with created things or created people, what happens? We change things like in us or around us in order to change other things so that they would change in their relationship with us. So in other words, I'm nice to you. Why? In the hopes that you'd be nice to me. (laughs) Sorry, but that's kind of true. You do things for me. Why? In the hopes that (laughs) I do things for you. You change for me in the hope that I'd change for you. I work for you in the hope that you would work for me. But all my efforts to change God, God's word, or God's judgment of me are futile. All my toil is in vain. In other words, God's judgment is absolute grace. Revealed on a tree in a garden. God's judgment is a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God's judgment is God's wisdom, the logic of unconditional love. Jesus. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and what do I gain from all my toil under the sun? Knowledge. that all my toil is futile. And knowledge that God's word is not futile. Knowledge that God's word is good. Knowledge that even if I try to change the love of God with good deeds or bad deeds, even if I crucify the love of God, the love of God does not change, but rises from the dead and changes me. So you see, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. 
For we must realize that we cannot change him. His judgment is eternal. It begins as the fear of God and it feels like sorrow, for we must also realize that all our efforts are in vain. Actually, all of our efforts to change God are evil. That's the evil business. And Jesus is God's good business. I just totally love this cartoon, and you can't see, no, you can see all of the caption. This is what it says. (laughs) Suddenly, Father Schobert was not sure whether he really should have bought the new crucifix at Ikea. (laughs) I think you could also say, suddenly, Father Schobert finds wisdom or wisdom finds him. He realizes that he's responsible for nailing Christ to the cross. Whenever we take knowledge of good and evil, so listen, listen closely to this, okay? I'm gonna read this because I wanna get it right. Whenever we take knowledge of good and evil, whenever we take wisdom in faithlessness and fear to justify ourselves and make ourselves in the image of God, we crucify Christ. And what we make is a false self or a shadow self, the product of our toil under the sun, the vanity of vanities. And that realization comes as a profound sorrow. But whenever we see that what we take in fear, God gives in love, Whenever we receive wisdom as grace through faith, Christ rises from the dead and reveals his true self and our true self, the product of God's toil from the foundation of the world before there even was a sun, a sun in the sky, God's breath. That's his work, his breath. And that realization, oh, that comes as a, profound joy. You know, a word is wisdom encoded in a breath. Jesus is God's word, and we are created with that word. Our true self is not the vanity of vanities, our own creation. Our true self is the work of God, the very breath of God, the wisdom of God, Jesus. So Father Schobert realizes that he's responsible for nailing Christ to the cross and that knowledge comes as a profound sorrow. And then Father Schobert can realize that Christ let him nail him to the cross because he loved Father Schobert so much and that knowledge comes as a profound joy. And then Father Schobert will love as he's been loved and love is the wisdom of God and love casts out fear. Love is life. And it's eternal. But you see, it all begins as fear (laughs) and sorrow. In Ecclesiastes 6.3, Solomon writes, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Jesus, son of David, prince of peace, put it this way, blessed, that means happy, are those who mourn, those who are acquainted with grief. And on the night he was betrayed, he said this to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, full of sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
and no one will take your joy from you. Why will they be sorrowful? Because they will give up, that is betray, the way, the truth, and the life. And, and why will their sorrow turn into joy? Because then they will see that the way, the truth, and the life will not betray them. For where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that, my friends, is wisdom. By wisdom, God makes all things new. Nothing is new under the sun, wrote Solomon, but God's mercies are new every morning. For mercy, grace, and love are not from under the sun. So through the wisdom of love, God makes all things new. God gives to man an evil business, wrote Solomon. That's true, but it's in order to reveal God's business, which is the good. All our toil is striving after the wind, wrote Solomon. But God is the wind, and he toils and he strives after us and for us. Old Solomon sought to save his life with wisdom, but wisdom all along sought to save Solomon. Wisdom condemns the old Solomon and sets the new Solomon free. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow, wrote Solomon. But the sorrow turns into joy, said the Prince of Peace. Do you see, sorrow is how God in his wisdom or through his wisdom makes joy. Sorrow is temporal. The joy is eternal. Sorrow is like an empty space prepared within you to be filled with joy, a, a river of joy that flows from the throne. The sorrow is like breathing out, expiring, so you can forever be inspired with the breath of God, like a, a river that flows from the throne and flows through you and out into others, but never runs dry. So do not hide from your sorrow. Or the sorrow of your neighbor. Don't always look on the bright side of life because the light shines in the darkness. Don't deny your sorrow, and this is, could be an entire another, another sermon, but listen closely. Don't deny your sorrow and don't idolize your sorrow. But learn from your sorrow. For wisdom is calling to you from your sorrow and wisdom will meet you in your sorrow. That's where he reveals himself and makes everything true and everything new. In a garden, on a tree, that we sometimes call a cross. In the Song of Solomon, Solomon revealed that your soul is a garden. And did you know that in that garden it is revealed that love is strong as death? The very flame of the Lord, the Shalabet Yah. In that garden, Solomon reveals himself to his beloved. Sorrow is how God makes joy. Sorrow is how God makes you. Sorrow is how God makes wisdom in you. Sorrow is how God makes or reveals Solomon in you. Solomon, you know, is more than a king who lived 3,000 years ago and reigned in Jerusalem. That prince of peace was like a shadow or type of the true prince of peace that builds the temple of God and lives and reigns in the new Jerusalem, which is you. Solomon is the son of David and prince of peace who lives and reigns over all things from your heart. 
but you may remember that Solomon was born out of sin and great sorrow. Solomon's father was King David, and his mother was a woman named Bathsheba. When David confessed his sin, the son of David in Bathsheba, from Bathsheba, died. Then David comforted Bathsheba and went into her, and she bore a son, another son, and this son of David and Bathsheba lived. One son of David bore David's sin and died, and one son of David lived and reigned in Jerusalem, that's Solomon. Jesus suffered and died for your sins, and Jesus lives and reigns in your heart. He is the wisdom of God, born of your sin and your sorrow. And he's worth it. So on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, and scripture calls it the eternal covenant. This, and, and forever new covenant. Now I'm starting to preach another sermon. Anyway, this, the eternal, this is the covenant. Uh, my, my blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so come to the table and give him your sin and your sorrow. In fact, take a moment right now and just, just close your eyes and say, God, What's my sorrow? Uh, probably a bunch of them, right? For some of you, the answer came really quick. For some of you, maybe you had to kind of search a bit. But now, now pray this. Prince of Peace, Would you reveal yourself to me in my sorrow? And reign over all things from that place. You are the king who reigns in my heart and from my heart. You are my Lord. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice.
shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life, oh, is my soul. You are there. Oh, yes, you story and that's wisdom and Lord God I thank you and I think everybody else here joins with me in thanking you that even though we kind of really don't want wisdom we kind of really just rather eat ice cream and watch sitcoms but um, I thank you that you are bound and determined to give us wisdom and wisdom is not a small thing it's not knowledge about a few rules in a book or how to put a microwave oven together Wisdom is you. And so, Lord Jesus, you are bound and determined to know us so that we would know you. That's huge. And so, God, uh, maybe you prepare a huge space in our heart called sorrow to fill it with yourself and you are joy. And joy is eternal. And so, Lord God, I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before you go, I need to say this to you, and um, I really want you to hear me. I didn't say this last, last night, but um, we're doing this life group sign-up thing now, and all of my life, I've been plagued by this question. People will listen to sermons, and they'll say, okay, what does this mean? Tell me what it means. What do I do about it? 
And what I struggle with is that sometimes I think they're saying, give me law. In other words, give me some steps that I need to do. Like, do I vote for Hillary? Do I do vote for Donald? Do I petition the government? Do I do a, yeah, give me something political to do? Give me, give me law. But, but you see, this is, this is the, the problem. I'd just kind of be making that stuff up. So, so what is it that I'm called to do? I, I think I'm called to give you a word. And the word is dinner. It's like, it's like wisdom. And you ingest the word and then you live your life. So when you get to the question of what do I do, well, I don't know. You need to listen to wisdom in your own heart. And, and a lot of the time, that happens in groups. So, so they said to Jesus, you know, tell us what to do. What's the law? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, when you get together with other people, wisdom will speak to you and wisdom will work out what it means in, in your own life. That's why the life group things, to me, is so important. I just want you to be connected to people and then let wisdom work itself out. I, I shared a story um, a few weeks ago when we preached on lament. Uh, it wasn't a story, it was just a survey that they did in England years ago asking elderly British people what was the happiest time of their life. And some vast percentage, I can't remember what it was, like 90% or something, uh, in this certain age group, they all said the Blitz. And that was the time when the Germans bombed London mercilessly and Londoners would gather in basements in the dark, huddled in small groups together, and what would they do? They would pray, maybe they'd look at a light sitting in the middle, and they would share something. What would they share? <laughs> sorrow, right? They would share their sorrow, and their sorrow turned into joy. Master, Meister Eric Eckhart said this. He said, if, if I knew that every rock in my knapsack would turn into gold, I would be all that much more happy the more rocks that I had in my knapsack. <laughs> That's like sorrow. And when you share it, you end up with more rocks in your knapsack and somehow the love of God uses that. All of that is to say, I hope that you're in some sort of life group where you just, I mean, we don't even really know what to, I don't know, pray, read about, do something in your life group, go get ice, whatever, but that you just live your life together. And it doesn't necessarily have to be our life group because we're not the boss of life, but that you have people in your life that you live life with. That's what it means, and then you listen to wisdom in your heart, all right? So another way to say that is believe the gospel and live. In Jesus' name, amen.